What is the global standard for nature-based solutions? Find out in this podcast with Dr. Radhika Murthy. In this chat over a cuppa, Dilhan C. Fernando has an insightful discussion with IUCN Director of Global Ecosystem Management Program, Dr. Radhika Murthy. Listen in as Dr. Murthy answers pressing issues such as how nature can help deliver solutions for water scarcity and mitigate the damaging impact of natural disasters. However, nature-based solutions won't solve everything. Thus, a mix of behavioral change, reprioritizing, and being able to tap into nature's power is needed. Dr. Radhika Murthy, Director of Global Ecosystem Management Program at IUCN in Switzerland. Thank you for joining us. Radhika, uh, we're grateful for your time. You are an expert in the area of nature-based solutions and we have a few questions for you. The first, Radhika, would be um, relating to water. We all need water and uh, today we know that uh, some alarming statistics are uh, possibly posing a threat for us in the future. So more than 3 billion people around the world are suffering from a shortage of water and we have population growth, climate change, and with all of that, that scarcity is expected to worsen. How can nature help us deliver solutions for water scarcity? Thanks, Dylan, and, and thanks for this opportunity to, to have a chat about this. And I, I want to actually, um, at this point, recognize how you're championing this absolutely essential piece of work um, in Sri Lanka and internationally with us. So fantastic to be here. Um, let me start by saying, um, Spot on, this is an issue that we cannot um, uh, ignore. Even our latest UN report just said that water will be, there's a risk that water might start being traded. And uh, um, that's where I think uh, nature-based solutions plays a very critical role. We have to remember that before we created the world we live in now, our ancestors for generations have lived off nature in very sustainable ways for us to be here today. And therefore it's also, as much as it's a, let's say a relatively new concept and a recently launched standard on nature-based solutions, it's pushing us to rethink from our past, what are the things we need to go back to? So for example, water availability and supply, how wetlands manage to store water and then release them as sponges of the earth during dry times. You know, these are the things we tend to forget when we simply think about dams and infrastructure as our way of water security. Soil moisture, how that can be used to, to sustain water supplies. And then water quality. How can we rethink our agricultural practices to reduce the pollution so that people, if, even if have, you have access to water, it needs to be clean water. So how do you manage that by living more in harmony with nature rather than having very intense degrading practices that, impact, that eventually impact the quality of your water? And then our relationship with water is um, on another level in terms of floods and droughts. So the effects of climate change. So what are some of the things we need to think about reducing our carbon footprint and being able to help uh, halt this carbon uh, climate change uh, crisis that we're facing because too much water is flooding, too little water is drought. So there are quite a few opportunities here for us to actually go back to Mother Nature and start rethinking our actions and the, what we perceive as sustainable development so that we can have access to water, access to quality water and be able to better manage what's coming in terms of climate change and water issues. 
we have the same similar situation to what you mentioned um, just now in Sri Lanka, where you know studying some of the ancient agricultural irrigation management principles, we we see revelations, we see innovation that happened thousands of years ago, which today would be revolutionary and of course very sustainable. But uh, right now, I understand that in Fiji, very sadly, um, there is a, a, a terribly devastating storm. Uh, which I hope, uh, you know, it, its worst effects and worst forecasts will be uh, will will not come to pass. But you know, with this, the frequency and intensity of this kind of uh, weather-related uh, events, like uh, extreme weather events, floods, uh, etc., increasing, how can nature offer solutions for mitigating the most damaging uh, impact uh, of these drought, storm, tsunami, whichever it is? Thank you. So, uh, yeah, indeed, um, I think the worst of Cyclone Yasa is not over yet, um, but we're hoping that, you know, um, the, the, the damages are minimum and that um, people in Fiji are able to get on with their lives. The good thing is COVID is quite under control. So evacuation centers, etc., they're able to function in ways where with COVID it would be very difficult. So thanks for mentioning that. I think, um, again here, uh, no one solution can solve everything. So it's also taking a, a cautious approach that, you know, NBS is not the panacea. It's the nature-based solutions is not going to solve everything. There is a mix of behavioral change, reprioritizing and being able to tap into nature's power. All of this needs to happen. So firstly, as, 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 as humans who live in this planet, we need to stop being reactive. We always end up reacting to when disasters happen and uh, and that's a bit too late you know countries really need to start looking at investing in risk management switzerland and japan do this quite well where they actively even if the disaster doesn't happen for the next 10 years they actively put in risk management measures just like a business would for for financial risk management or brand risk management so i think that's first First and foremost, and that with that, nature-based solutions power can be unleashed because that becomes a very cost-effective and accessible way for managing the risks. So before we even think about nature as a solution, we need to really embed and, and own risk management. And the way nature can help there is, you know, if you think about building higher and higher seawalls, we can think about restoring vegetation on, on, the, on the coastline. We can think about making sure that we stop polluting our coral reefs. And, and if you think of an island, for example, there's layers of natural barriers that nature provides. Um, in Fiji, there are communities that say, you know, they feel like three times protected. One with the coral reef, which reduces the, the wave energy of storms that come in from the sea. Two could be mangrove and coastal vegetation. And three, often you will have around there swamps and, and wetlands, coastal wetlands. So they feel like, you know, nature protects them with these different layers. And as we build more and more, on the foreshores, we're stripping away these natural barriers. So nature-based solutions is about protecting these, where needed restoring this, and making sure our use of those resources are more sustainable so they don't weaken that potential of nature to protect us from disasters. And Japan's a very good example of this. They even, uh, using these different strips, they go another step beyond of making sure that they're zoning. 
So people don't live right on the edges or, or at the forefront of, of these disaster um, hotspots. So they'll put an industrial zone, avoiding residential zone. They'll put a highway. So it's a very, uh, you know, it's quite an opportunity to not just um, see this as a threat to development, but combine layers of protection using nature with um, man-made protection so that we can reduce our risks to, to the disasters. This is possible. This has happened for centuries in Japan since the 14th century. Um, maybe other countries uh, perhaps have just um, overlooked this potential or, or you know, not uh, fully Un unleashed that through their own policies and systems. But given climate change, there is no choice. I think we need to think more and more about how we can work with nature rather than against it to protect ourselves. Another uh, aspect of nature, Radhika, that uh, uh, we, we might often ignore is the fact that beyond uh, the, the crises and beyond all the bad stuff that uh, uh, we like to talk about in the news, there are enormous benefits in terms of the aesthetic and the related psychological benefits in, in creating habitats where biodiversity is, is enriched and so on. And with stress and, and psychological stress being one of the outcomes of uh, COVID-19, I think this becomes all the more important. And looking at some of the examples, such as, for example, the valuation of uh, the Great Barrier Reef, um, what are your suggestions for assigning monetary value to these critical services in nature and advancing the concept of, of natural capital? That's a very that's a very interesting question, and and um, it's a bit of a controversial one, uh, where you have you know. Um, uh, you, we still have ongoing difference of opinions, but difference of opinions often can be a good thing where, you know, you come out uh, richer and, and more informed in, in, in the approaches. And one school of thought is, you know, this, there's such um, an intrinsic cultural value to nature that it's almost offensive to put monetary value to it. And then there is another, uh, you know, the reality of the world uh, approach of everything is being monetized and it's because of lack of putting value on nature we take it for granted for example if you go to a gym and people say if you pay you'll be more committed it's a bit like that if we pay for something it for some reason makes it more valuable to us rather than taking it for granted and and you see this happening you know clean water clean air there's this first case yesterday i saw in the us i think of um, a girl uh, girl's death being related to air pollution like a landmark case so these are the things we've taken for granted and um, if we don't start seriously thinking about nature as goods and services for the critical survival of people and whereby we need to look at it in some sort of value, monetary, cultural, we need to value nature in more um, tangible ways for people to stop taking it for granted and start seeing it as nature's infrastructure, nature's way of providing us with water, food, clean air, etc. So I think there is uh, the debates in academia as well as, you know, um, uh, with the modern governance system and traditional um, mechanisms of land ownership will still go on. But my approach to that is the outcome of it, as long as it doesn't create a lack of transparency, more inequity and 
marginalization in in societies then that is the best approach to take in terms of whether you value it monetary value it monetize it and value it or not so it's still a controversial topic but we're starting to see more and more of this mainstreamed into how we operate with our gdps um you'll see i think in 2021 the UN SARE process, the UN um, environmental accounting process that need, that will come in at national levels, where your GDP is adjusted according to positives you can show on nature and negatives that you 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 will show uh, uh, and negative impacts on nature. So I think we are headed that way anyway, but we need to make sure that this absolutely respects cultural, traditional, other intrinsic values that people hold close to them and um, and, and not um, clash with those traditional systems. In fact, tap into them to make this a more stronger approach in how we value nature. I was very uh, happy to read the other day in, a, in the business media, which was especially surprising, the work of uh, uh, George Serafim, I think he's a professor at Harvard. And what he said is, uh, uh, without monetizing impacts, we are left with the illusion that business have no impact. And what he was talking about is uh, the impact on the environment, on society, etc. And, and uh, actually, he went even further to make a very dramatic statement, saying companies that show big profits can have enormous negative effects on society. Of course, talking about the environment also. And uh, you know, he went on to say they're just cheating because they're operating in a context that doesn't price all those impacts. So I think you're right. There is a a groundswell of change, which I hope gathers momentum so that we have uh, fairer treatment right, without just externalizing these critical uh, life support systems that nature offers. But in that context, um, you were involved earlier this year, Radhika, in the launch of a global standard for nature-based solutions, and it was designed to help public and private se sector understanding and incorporating uh, nature-based solutions into the operations. Please tell us a little bit more about the principles in the global standard and how you expect that this might change understanding and acceptance of the principle of uh, nature-based solutions. Sure, Dylan. Um, so just to say this was probably one of the most challenging um, assignments I was given by, by my boss in my career because it's a, such a, this this standard was such a transdisciplinary, just a cross-sectoral piece of work that we had to deliver where we realized that no one set of experts could sit in an office somewhere in Europe and design this and then go around consulting communities, governments, companies. Rather, we thought, okay, the complexity of it can be solved by the diversity of the sources of knowledge we're going to tap into. So if, if I can put it this way, we crowdsourced this standard. And I think it's the first ever that's been done because of just the different complexities and different dimensions of how nature can be used for people in more sustainable ways. It's, it's such a complex issue. And yet we had to come up with a framework that's, uh, you know, that's the same, um, that, that resonates with companies that governments can work with, that a community somewhere in the Amazon can relate to and work with. So it was quite a complex piece of work that we did. And in that process, we had about 800 or so people from around 100 countries as part of this development process of this standard. It was, it was quite an incredible process to, to undertake. And I definitely feel coming out of it, I feel so enriched with knowledge and also reassured of that incredible 
incredible commitment from companies as well as governments that we've got to turn this around. There is multiple crises, climate, pandemic now, biodiversity loss, and there is a lot of goodwill to change and, and turn this around. So the standard is in some ways catching up to a lot of this great stuff that's been happening, the things you're already doing in Sri Lanka for in the last decade. So it's a, it's a sort of a meeting that demand that's been created through people getting on with the innovation, through people being able to see that they need to change certain practices. So the standard is basically about how we firstly protect intact green areas that serve as goods and services to people. Secondly, areas that need to be restored. And thirdly, sustainable and better management of natural resources that are needed for production and, and other human consumption use. So it puts a eight criteria framework around this, where whatever we do in terms of manipulating nature to deliver goods and services cannot ultimately be called a nature-based solutions because it's harmed biodiversity or it's harmed people. So that itself is very complex to achieve, but now we do have this standard where you firstly, your starting point is the problem. Any basis of any good solution is a well-defined problem. So what is it? Are you looking at food security, climate change, human health, a multiple different aspects, development needs of people, and then working with that to deliberately design a nature based response to it instead of thinking infrastructure or technology or any other solution. So my problem is, let's say, um, human health, then I'm going to look at the broader landscape, the standard then looks at the broader landscape. How do you design parks uh, and green spaces within a city to help with you know, mental health, to help with reducing air pollution, because green spaces in cities can be the lungs that absorb pollution in, in, in a city. And it systematically works you through making sure there's a balance of economic um, feasibility, social equity and environmental sustainability. But it's unrealistic to think, you know, we'll have a triple bottom line up front all the time. So there's going to be balances and trade-offs. Who wins today? What do we need to preserve for tomorrow? How do we make these choices and balance trade-offs for short and long term? And it works you systematically through these eight criteria to get to a point to say, I have designed a solution that actually now ensures that people are able to use nature in a more sustainable way to be able to get both biodiversity and people's needs met. But it's just not going to happen overnight. You know, there can be a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. And within that, how do you measure your success? How do you keep uh, adaptive management at the forefront of it? Things change. Nature is dynamic. How do you keep um, adapting your solution to stay to make it relevant and in the last the eighth criteria criterion is very interesting where it's pushing companies as well as governments then NGOs all three sectors to think about how do we embed this in national policies gov governments targets a regulatory framework of a company you know, where it, it stays and lives on in perpetuity. The true potential of nature-based solutions is its long-term delivery of services. And sometimes we move from project to project, we have a really flavor of the month initiative, and then we move on from it without it having realized its potential. So the standard again pushes us to embed these really great efforts and solutions 
into frameworks which will ensure the sustainability over the long term. So the youth, you know, the, the solutions we put in today in my lifetime, the, the youth of tomorrow are going to have to maintain it and carry it forward. So basically shifting from conservation actions to making these solutions public goods and services and how you systematically make sure that they're maintained for their robustness and their delivery. So that's basically what the standard is. And it's nothing new again, it's just putting pieces of, good pieces of different puzzles together into a new puzzle that can help us do things bigger and better and faster and do things with the, you know, that one common approach with which we can all be accountable. That's, that makes tremendous sense because you need you need a framework. You know, often when we talk about NDS, uh, lots of people uh, say, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea, but actually practically distilling it into tangible actions. I think that's where lots of people uh, find, find it difficult. And uh, it, it seems that the standard uh, addresses or provides a framework for this. So how can someone who's interested uh, access the standard and, and uh, have a look or, or use it or whatever? Is, is it online? Yes. So um, we simply need uh, somebody to send us an email on nbsstandard at iucn.org and what we're trying to do is not make it openly accessible because at this point because we want to interact with our users so there's a fast growing user group we have um, companies we have governments we have academics from about 59 countries i just looked up the stats yesterday and uh, we are creating a user group because it's the first generation where we're systematically using the standard to design solutions so we want to have a direct interaction with people before we make this publicly open because we still need to guide this you know it's a it's like letting go of the baby's hand too early before it can walk so we very much want to engage with people who are going to pioneer the first generation pilots so if simply sending an email and we help you register in our user group and then you become part of these uh, hundreds of people around the world who are helping us very quickly pilot this in different situations so that we can pull all this knowledge together and, and make sure that we get to a point where we're comfortable enough to say, here's the standard, go for it. It's amazing that you've made this into a co-created uh, initiative rather than a, a sort of a monologue, which uh, I guess is the temptation generally, but it's fantastic. And really it's a sign of the times because there's no question that without collaboration, uh, we're not going to uh, succeed given the scale of the task we have. But with that, Dr. Radhika Murthy, I would like to thank you. You are tremendously generous with your time and your expertise. And we truly feel blessed to have uh, uh, heard and learned what you have shared. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Dylan. The pleasure is all mine, actually. I'm, so, I'm just so happy that, you know, we have colleagues like you who make the effort to get the messages out it's a challenge for me as you said this has to um this has to resonate with people beyond the people i talk to often i find we talk to the converted the same circle of people just to hear a yes so this is really interesting for me to have these kind of discussions with with colleagues like you who are not so much within our circle but are still so uh, tuned into how you can help us get the messages out